0: It truly is an honor to be here. It's also an honor to follow up Ken Ingram, so I appreciate that all around. Thank you, Ken, for bringing us before God's throne. Um, this morning, my goal is to encourage us. I think we all need some encouragement. Oftentimes, we think of a verse like Philippians 1.6, which says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Right? How many of you guys have ever received that as an encouragement from someone? I think a lot of us have received that as an encouragement. Well, I want to say this morning that I think that refers or can refer not only to an individual, but also to us as a church and as God's church. Right? You see, a church, really, the measure of a great church is not an A plus children's ministry. And it's certainly not an amazing list of great programs, it's not pitch perfect. Uh, worship, although McCartney you did amazing, he was over here a second no of There he's in the back. And it certainly is not dependent upon a dynamic leader, right? The measure of a great church, the power of a church to see lives changed, is in the good news that we proclaim. Do you agree? So then, here's what I want to say to you today. I am confident that he who began a good work in New City will see it through to the day of completion. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Right. What, What are we doing this morning? We're gathering together because we collectively have responded and we have heard this great story of God's love for us through the person of Jesus. That's why we're here this morning. Maybe some of us are still questioning that, and we're interested in it, and we're asking questions. Maybe we haven't taken that, that step of actually putting our faith in it, but we're here because of that story. We're not here because of everything that is, that is offered on a website when I click on and I, I read through a list of things that are happening. Right? All of those things that are happening, I, I got to hang out with one of my former students um, Friday night, and one of the things he talked about, he's in ministry right now, um, many of you guys know him, uh, Andrew Axum. I was hanging out with Andrew, if you know him. And one of the things Andrew said to me is like, you know, we, we try to create all of these front porches in, in ministry so that people can have these natural conversations about Jesus. That, that's ultimately the goal, I think, of any church, right? Is to be a front porch ministry, to bring people in and then tell them this great story that we've all responded to. So I'm going to pray for us today that that would be the one that the name of Jesus will be that which we lift up this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for your great love for us. Uh, Father, all of us in this room are mere sinners. Father, all of us have fallen short of the mark that you have set for us. And yet, Father, you have found it good in your own plans to make a way that we might have a relationship with you. Father, it didn't cost you much. It just cost you the life of your son, it just cost you the most precious thing that you had, your greatest treasure, Father. You gave that up in order to call us your children. Father, that is a beautiful thing. And so, Father, I pray that today that that you would be in my head, that you would be in my thinking, that you would be in the words that we share today, um, and that in somewhere in the midst of that, we would connect with you through what you've done for us. And so, Father, we lift up these things in the name of Jesus, the name of of the one that you sent for us. Uh, We pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so this morning, if you're following along, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 10. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23. We'll pick up a few different verses in light of that, uh, but I want to read verse 21 through 23 as we begin this morning. It says this, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. i read that last part for he who promised is faithful. Okay, we're going to come back to that. Uh, But as we start, looking at verse 21, verse 21 says that, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and it's really important, I think, oftentimes, we talked a lot in seminary about um, what we, in theological terms, would call exegesis, which is where you're looking at a passage and you're You're trying to figure out what God's saying in that passage and why that passage is there and is unique, right? A lot of times you come to a passage and you feel like, I've I've heard that somewhere before. I feel like I've read that somewhere else in the Bible, okay? That kind of all falls under exegesis. But one thing they warned us against was iso-jesus, definitely a word they made up. But what they meant by it was taking a verse and isolating it, right? Turning it into a bumper sticker. And so I'm going to give you a bumper sticker verse today at the end of our sermon. But what I hope is all the work that you and I have done before that to put that verse in context makes you go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that's where that verse came in the story that God's telling. Okay? Does that make sense? That's the goal. I don't know if I'll accomplish it, but we'll just pretend that I did if I don't. Okay, so what is the context of Hebrews? because it's talking about this great high priest. And I think for many of us, we've been around church enough that we know that sometimes we refer to Jesus as a high priest, but it's like, what does that mean? Like, like why do they give him this title? You know, a priest is someone who maybe does ministry with someone else, comes alongside of them in a difficult time, encourages them. Um, if you grew up in a Catholic sort of setting, maybe you think of a priest as someone who receives confession and hears um, the things that we 've done and speaks forgiveness over us, okay, so we all have these different understandings of of what a high priest is, but you know we don 't know a lot about the author of Hebrews we don 't know who it was. some people would say it was Paul, some people would say it was it was another maybe Jewish scholar that 's around there. We know that the writer did not see Christ himself, he did not see Jesus, he was not one of the direct followers of Jesus during jesus' time he 's someone who is who has uh, responded to the faith uh, post-Jesus. We're not quite sure when it's written. The book of Hebrews is probably written around 70 AD if you're like a a Bible scholar. Um, Well, sorry, it's actually before 70 AD because what's gonna happen soon is you're gonna have the destruction of the temple and it's not mentioned in this. So we tend to set it a little earlier than that, maybe in the late 50s, early 60s. But the reason why that becomes important is because he addresses the Hebrews, the Hebrew people. And this would have now included two groups of people. One, Jewish believers, but also these new Gentile believers that are coming into the faith. So you might have run into some other books like Galatians, Ephesians, some of these things, where they're struggling with what type of faith and practice should we have? Should we look Jewish or should we step away from some of the Jewish traditions and sort of create our own? So they're struggling with that. Part of that struggle is the temple. What do we do with the temple? Because the temple is still functioning. There's still people making sacrifices. There are still um, goats and lambs and bulls being sacrificed in order to uh, appease God for the sins of the people. Okay? And so all of those questions is happening. And so the writer of Hebrews says that uh, he starts off chapter 10 with this. Verse 1 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of its realities. Okay, So the law is but a shadow of the good things to come. It just has some glimpses of the reality. So here's what the writer's saying. He's saying, um, you know, we're meeting as a church, but we know in our heads there's temple worship that's going on. And while sacrifice is good, bringing a goat, bringing a lamb is good, it is just a shadow of what it is that God ultimately has for us. Okay, now for you and I, we live on this side of the cross. Okay, what you have to remember is the the sacrificial system was really on the other side of the cross. It was preparing the way. It was, in some ways, it was a preview of coming attractions. It was meant to help you and I try to understand what it was that God was going to do through Jesus. Now, if somehow we could wrap our minds around that and go back in time and imagine, you know, I don't know about what God is going to do in Jesus, and so I'm seeing this temple worship happening, I'm seeing these sacrifices made, you know, what, what would it have communicated to you and I? Well, it would have told us that there must be some type of, of sacrifice or payment for our sins, that our sins mean something to God, that there is a problem, that there is some kind of wall between me and God, and I, I, I've got to figure out how to break that down. You know, how do I get through that wall so that I can have this relationship with God? And so in temple worship, that was through sacrifice, but here in Hebrews, it's called a shadow. So I love this. So I, I kind of geek out about some of these things, if you can do that. Um, so C.S. Lewis, some of you guys have read C.S. Lewis. Some of you guys are old enough like me to remember a movie called uh, The Shadowlands, okay, which was uh, Anthony Hopkins, and it's about C.S. Lewis and his relationship with his wife who winds up passing away of cancer. And and the reason why that book is called The Shadowlands is because it's an image that Lewis used a lot. He talked about The Shadowlands. Well, we're going to back up a step because Lewis had stole that image. So he stole it from a guy named George MacDonald. So George MacDonald writes a book. If you're going to read any George MacDonald book, read The Golden Key. Okay, And it's going to feel like a fairy tale to you. Now, that's going to become important in just a second. So what George MacDonald does is he creates this world in which we meet this young character named Mossy. And Mossy finds a golden key. And he looks around. He cannot figure out what that key unlocks. And so if I remember right, he goes to his grandmother or his mom or somebody in his life, and he shows them this key, and they say, oh, you have to go on a journey. If you go on this journey, you'll find the lock in which that key unlocks. And so Mossy chooses to go on this journey. Well, pretty soon he meets this young girl named Tangle, and so he and Tangle go on this great journey through this fairy land uh, to try to figure out what this key unlocks. And he knows he's just being led somewhere, but he can't, he can't quite understand where he's being led, right? And so periodically he runs into people and they kind of give him pieces of the story, right? It's a story that we're very, very used to. What was interesting about the land that he's in is it is a land uh, in some ways full of shadows, Matter of fact, McDonald calls it the land. Well, well, they're looking for this other land because what happens is the land that they're in, there's all these shadows cast on the ground and they look up and they they can't find what's creating those shadows, right? They expect there to be a tree. Um, I live in Lake over by the airport in Orlando and sometimes I'll be mowing my yard and all of a sudden this giant shadow just goes past me and it's a plane. Right, And so I know when I see that shadow that I could look up, oh, there's a plane, that's what it is. Well, they're in this land where they can't figure out what these shadows are. So at one point they learn that there is another land that they're longing for, which is the land from which the shadows fall. I don't know why, I just love that language. You know, a good writer is just, I don't know, there's something that taps into your heart. But but this idea of the land from which the shadow falls, uh, if any of you guys ever read like Plato's cave. A lot of this language comes from that. Um, in Plato's cave story, there are these shadows that dance. There's a fire and there's shadows that dance on the wall of the cave. And the person that's in the cave thinks that's reality. They have no clue that there's a whole world outside of this cave. They're just mesmerized by these shadows that they're seeing. And so Lewis, McDonald, Plato, all are revealing something to you and I that we live in this world of shadows, okay? So we live in this world that isn't quite what God intended it to be. So why is that? Well, we go back to Genesis 3, and we know there's something called the fall. So one of my favorite pictures of this is if you've ever read Lewis's The Silver Chair, uh, one of the greatest characters I think ever created is Puddleglum. So Puddleglum is this kind of like uh, very innocent, almost kind of Eeyore Kind of character, okay. And at one point, this um, this this witch has kind of enchanted these young kids, and Puddleglum is with them, and he is one of one of the characters that actually lives in the fairyland, and these kids don't live in the fairyland. So Puddleglum has been trying to tell them about the wonderful parts of this world, and this witch has enchanted them, and they start saying. And so she has them in this dungeon in this basement. And the kids start saying, but there's trees outside, and there's the sun, and there's the moon, and there's, there's you know horses, and there's dogs, and they're naming all these amazing things. But because of the enchantment, they, they've started to forget about them. And so they kind of come in and out of this, this sort of enchanted stage. And, and at some point, the witch says to them, no, those aren't real. This is the only reality. You're just seeing the pictures that are on the wall, and you're creating this in your head. And Glum finally chimes in and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I don't know if you're right or not, but I know this, I'd rather live as if that world is true than to live in your dungeon, right? And so part of what we're being asked today is are we just gonna buy into the shadow land that we live in? Are we gonna buy in to these small little glimpses or are we gonna start to see these breadcrumbs that have been laid out before us. So Romans gives us some of these breadcrumbs that have been laid out. One, Romans says that a sunset, that the Grand Canyon, that a funny story that lifts your spirit, that all of these things somehow in your heart start to remind you that there's more to reality than what I see, right? And what does Romans one say it is? It's God, it's glimpses of God, right? I mean, as bad as life can be, and, and I would say this, you know, I think a lot of us feel like we're in a bit of a crisis. We're not sure what things look like next. You know, um, Jonathan is going to come a little bit after me, and he's going to share with us a little bit about what things might look like next, but I think all of us feel like we're in a bit of a crisis, but one of the things that we're reminded is that even in that moment, Is it amazing how your heart at different times can forget about whatever crisis you're in? Maybe it's a certain song that comes on the radio and you go, oh man, that was nice. And then the song ends and you're like back into reality. But you know what I mean? There's these little moments where it's like you forget what's going on with you. What are those things? Lewis, McDonald, Paul would tell us they're just shadows. They're just shadows of a land from where the shadows fall. Well, there, there's even more shadows. There's things like the Lord's Supper. It's a shadow of, of some meal that we're told that we're going to have one day, not, not trying to figure out in seminary. I trying to figure out, like, they ask you a lot about what the Lord's Supper is. Like, does the bread and the wine become the body of Jesus is it symbolic of the body of Jesus? Some of you guys know that, that discussion, and your head's just like spinning, and you're like, I don't know, but I don't want to answer it wrong. But I know this. It is a shadow of a meal that you and I will have one day with our King Jesus there in our presence in, in a physical way. He will be there and we will sit down, and we will pull a chair up next to him, and you and I will joy meal with him, and we will forget all about what the Lord's Supper is, because it won't be a shadow anymore. We'll see the reality of it. You know what else is a shadow? Baptism is a shadow, isn't it? What is a shadow? What is this a shadow of? Was a shadow of the Holy Spirit coming upon us? It's a shadow of, of the transformation that's happening in our heart. It's a shadow of us declaring that we are going to believe who Jesus says he is, and we're going to put our faith in that. It's a shadow. So you and I live in the shadow land, but the reality is these shadows aren't all positive shadows. Some of them are a result of the fall. Some of them are shadows of who you and I long to be right? Uh, Somebody asked me the other day to write out, I was in a Sunday school class and they had us write out our spiritual gifts, right? And I don't know if you've ever had anybody ask you this, but I'm like, I always find it hard because I know myself. So for me to try to write down that encouragement is a spiritual gift of mine or teaching or whatever, some of those things are things that I want to be my spiritual gifts. I don't know if that makes sense, But then there's certainly other times, my wife is laughing, (laughs) but there are certainly times where I know that I am an encourager, and then there's other times where I realize my words can hurt people at the same time, right? And so even we live, and even we ourselves are sort of shadows. One of my favorite places in the Bible is Genesis 1, when God says he has created us in his image. What does that mean? That means that we're a shadow. We're we're something that points to this ultimate reality of who God is. And so you and I can give people a glimpse of who God is, but we can never really be God. Um, If you've gone through that really tough first year of marriage, you know this. Because sometimes we look at that other person that we've fallen in love with and that we've committed our life to, and we want to be an encourager to them, and we want to love them well, and we want to make them feel like the most incredible thing, and then we keep failing at it over and over and over. Like, the reality is we are just image bearers. We are not the thing itself. Okay, and so that is what the writer of Hebrews is doing, and the shadow that he is dealing with is this sacrificial system because the people are starting to think about going back to the temple. Because they're thinking, this, this, this Jesus thing, maybe I could add in some of this real like sacrificial symbolic stuff that feels really real to me, like I'm doing something. I'm going and taking this um, dove, and I'm sacrificing this dove because I know that I'm sinful. And so they really want to do something. And yet, over and over again, we are reminded that faith, in many ways, is me not doing anything at all and just sitting in the assurance and in and, and the, the joy of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. right? But our human spirit, we want to do. We want to do something. Let me earn that somehow. A lot of times I say it like this. When you get to heaven, and you know, when I was a kid, they used to talk about that question of, why shall I let you into my heaven? Did you ever hear that question when you were a kid? I think it's from evangelism explosion, and it's a good question. But I was always terrified. Like, what is the right answer? How do I say it right? If I say too much, that sounds like I'm trying to explain it away. But I know this. If you have to slide a resume across the table to get into heaven, it better not have any of your stuff on it. It better just have a list of what Jesus has done. But you know what we try to do? And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We try to slide a resume across, and it's got Jesus. And then at the bottom, it's got, you know, those things you wrote on your resume that you were like, my resume seems way too short, so I'm just going to start throwing things in. Great team builder, you know, awesome at PowerPoint. Um, You start throwing random stuff in. uh, And, you know, if you were, like, involved in sports, like, competitive, whatever your sport was, right? Those things. You and I filled that whole list up with stuff we've done. doesn't matter. He's only going to read the top of the resume because it's all about what Jesus did for us. So verse 22 plays off of this, and it says this, let us then draw near with true hearts and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So He really gives us three things. So one, uh, there is this sense in which I think that what we tend to face is this fear in life. Now, for some of us, that fear may look different, okay? So when he says full assurance, what that's denoting is that there's some kind of reason why you and I might be fearful or worried or maybe feel guilty. He's gonna go on to say a clean, clear conscience. Right, He's going to talk about a true heart. Well, if he talks about a true heart, there must mean there's a way in which my heart may be false or I may be putting forth this image and it's not really true of who I am. And so I think there's this fear of being sort of found out as an imposter, if you know what I mean here. But the writer of Hebrews says this, we can draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith. We can draw near and know that our heart has been sprinkled, that it has been clean. We can draw near and know that our bodies are washed in the pure water. And we can hold fast to this this hope that we have without wavering. Well, how is that? Because that's not often how I feel. I don't always feel at all like that. What's that last little phrase? Verse 23. Doesn't have anything to do with you and I. Read that last little phrase. For he who promised is faithful, right? Um, I don't remember the whole story. There's this great story, though, about uh, when uh, Kennedy was president and that he had uh, Robert Kennedy was his son, yeah. And, and so he had a standing rule that if his kids ever wanted to come in, they were allowed to come in. And so there's this great picture of him sitting at his desk working, doing presidential things in the Oval Office, and his son is poking his head out from this little trap door that was sort of in the, in the desk there. So his son is like at his feet underneath his desk, right? I've always found that, this beautiful picture of what, what it looks like to be able to come in with full assurance, right? If you have an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old or a 10-year-old, when they come in and tell you a story, man, they are so confident, Right, They just run in and maybe their brother did something to him. They just blurt it out because they have full assurance that their understanding of what happened is reality. Do you ever wish that you could be like that eight-year-old kid? Because I don't always act like that. I come in and I make caveats. I make excuses. I make explanations. I kind of guard myself. Well, you know, this is true, but, but here's reasons why people may not think it's true. Whatever. Right, We are invited to come in with full assurance. We are invited not to sit at the feet of a president, but to sit at the feet of a king with full assurance that we are his his beloved children. So, McCartney, I have four minutes. (laughs) Here is kind of where we get the script flipped. Here is your bumper sticker verse. So with all of this that the writer of Hebrews has said about Jesus, man, I want McCartney to come up and I want him to to sing a worship song and let's worship Jesus right now, right? That's the response that is in my heart. But Ken, you have your Bible. Would you stand up and read verse 24 and 25 for us? Because what is he actually getting to? Would you would you mind, Ken? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about community. He's talking about the way that you and I, you see, I don't know of any story. I was thinking this on my way over here. I don't know of one story. Maybe you can name one, but I don't know of one story where there is not multiple people going on the journey together. Think about these journey stories you have. There's always a guy and a girl. There's always multiple people. There's always a team. They're always doing it together, right? It's almost like you wouldn't even have a story if it was just one person walking through the world together. Or even if there is one person that starts on the journey, eventually they meet a group of people that they start to care about in a way that they're willing to move away from their selfishness and their self-centeredness. And by the end of the story, they do what? They make some great sacrifice. And again, Hollywood has to steal from Jesus because it's the only thing that'll move your heart. You know, it's amazing. I, so I grew up in the 80s. Uh, I love Transformers, not in the movies. I love the real Transformers, right? If you know what I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. There is not a movie that Optimus Prime does not say, I will do it. I will sacrifice myself, right? Every time, you know it's coming. And still, you're like, You're so excited because it doesn't matter how many times your heart hears the story of sacrifice. It's it's how God designed us is to hear that story and respond to it. And so what does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, all of this is so that we can be together, so that we can be together with God, but so that we can be together with each other. And we need each other because we need each other to say, no, 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 Jason, don't worry. That's just a shadow. You you get what I'm saying? We need people in our life. I was going to do this, and I'm not going to do it. I could walk through. I would name my wife first, and then I would name somebody like Chris Kramer. I would name Jonathan Culley. I would name Ken Ingram. I would start naming people in this room. I would name Warner Fry. I would name Warner Fry's son. I would name Eric Durham that have reminded me at different times in my life that it's just shadows. But do you know what we tend to do with our faith? We tend to isolate ourselves, right? We tend to go off and try to go at it alone. We tend to take the journey by ourselves. But what do we really need? We need a Mossy. We need a Tangled. We need people around us to say, bro, this is just a shadow. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. Keep at it. Uh, There's a song that recently came out um, by a guy named Drew Holcomb. Uh, which somebody that I listen to, you don't need to listen to the song, but it's called "Find Your People," and it says, just going to read a few lines from it. It says, "You got to find your people, the ones who make you feel all right, the kind you can stay up with all night. You got to find your people, the ones that make you feel whole. They won't leave your side when you lose control. The ones who don't let you lose your soul. You got to find your people, the ones who get the joke." who understand what you're saying before a word is spoke. you got to find your people. Put the needle in the groove. When you're together, you got nothing to lose. Um, new City's going to be okay. You know why it's going to be okay? Is because of the one who is faithful. He who is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us each other. Thank you that we do not walk through this world alone. Father, thank you for the people that you put in our lives in just the right moment. They send us a text, they give us a call, um, they encourage us. Father, thank you that we get to play that same role in the lives of the people around us. Father, will you help us when we see a friend in, in, in a crisis, not to step away, but to lean in. Father, will you help us to be willing, not even to, because so often we don't know the words to say. Father, will you help us just to be present, just to be there. Father, in a personal way, I'm so glad uh, that I have a whole list of, of, of people that you've put in my life. And Father, we are grateful uh, for that. Father, we are so grateful that Jesus came and he gathered men around him. Father, we are so grateful that in the very first chapter of the Bible, we are told that God himself exists in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. um, Colossians reminds us that Jesus is there at creation, that all things are made are through him, for him, and by him. Father God, you have not called us to do this alone. Thank you so much for every Sunday that we come and we get to gather with your people. Will you help us to do that on a regular basis outside the walls of this church to be to one another, each other, to love each other, um, that we might be reminded of your son and what he did for us. And we pray these things in his name, amen.